0: To the next to the last lecture in this series. Today we're going to talk about something which although it probably shouldn't be the case is in a certain sense completely different. Uh, we've been talking about ethics of course all along. We've been talking though about some very abstract and very philosophical uh, issues. First the sort of history and development of what I call classical metaethics in my opening four lectures. The debates in the first two-thirds of this century about the very most foundational and most abstract questions about justification and motivation in ethics, focusing especially on semantic issues about what good means, if you can remember back to all of that stuff. In the last four lectures, six lectures actually now that I think about it, we turned our attention to the conversation that's dominated moral philosophy of an academic sort in the second half of the 20th century, a conversation about normative ethical theory. And I've suggested to you that the scene has been dominated by moral philosophers' attempts to recover, to fix up, and to defend models of normative theory that originally find their place in classical views of figures like Aristotle, Kant, Bentham, Rousseau and Hobbes and other people in Aquinas and we haven't talked about and also the views of those people like Williams and Rorty we were talking about last time who think that the whole project of moral philosophy is somehow flawed and something we just need to get over. Now in all of this, one of the things we haven't talked much about are the concrete questions of moral philosophy. How should we live? Should we perform abortions? Is euthanasia okay? How should we think about killing in war? Can we create new people? Is it all right, even if you think abortion is all right, for married couples to get serially pregnant and do tests so that they abort all the the female children they have because they want a male child? Is it all right for us to, as we do, sell sperm on the internet so that any one of you could go to a dozen websites and order up for your own project of in vitro fertilization human sperm that would Characteristically come from someone who's 6 feet 6 inches tall with an IQ of 150 whose parents went to the best schools and grew up in the mountains of California. What about these concrete kind of ethical questions that are the meat and potatoes of the everyday life of people who live in the liberal democracies like all of us where discussion of these issues is ubiquitous and where disagreement is to be found in virtually all of these discussions For the most part in the 20th century, academic moral philosophy did not talk about these questions at all, at least not as academic moral philosophers. People like Moore and Stevenson lived through the Great Depression, two world wars, social and cultural changes that were the most important in the history of civilization, and Kept right on talking for the most part about non natural properties, emotive meaning, and the fact value problem. If they wrote about the Great Depression or the Second World War, it was an occasional piece. It was a kind of busman's holiday for them. With the return to normative theory, with people like Rawls and McIntyre, Parfit, the revival of consequentialism, we get a return to sort of relevance for moral philosophy but still moral philosophy is pretty abstract stuff it's pretty distant from the concrete moral dilemmas as we might call them of ordinary life now this changes though it changes in the 1960s and the early 1970s and we have what I'm gonna call an applied ethics Revolution, And I want to spend today talking about this and what I think are some very puzzling things about it. The Applied Ethics Revolution, and here are some features of this, it's a recent revolution, it is a large-scale revolution, and it is a wide-ranging revolution. It is recent in the sense that up until, as I said, the 1960s and the early 1970s, Moral philosophers simply didn't engage in discussion of these concrete problems. I went to the university in 1960. I finished my PhD in 1970. I was being educated in the decade of the 60s and during much of that time, my education was focused on moral philosophy and ethics. I can honestly say that virtually at no time during that ten-year period did I, inside a philosophy classroom, talk about a concrete ethical issue. And when you think about the fact that I was being educated In the 1960s, this is more remarkable. The civil rights struggle was going on, and many of the philosophers I knew participated in it, as did I. The Vietnam War was going on. There were protests outside the door. Tear gas was wafting into the seminar rooms of philosophy departments across this country. But for the most part, we kept on talking about issues, and when we needed a concrete issue, it was almost always your obligation to return library books on time. We might leave the philosophy seminar room and go out and make a political speech or engage in a civil rights march or engage in argument someone who held views that we disagreed with, but within the philosophy classroom it was all returning library books on time thinking about Kant and Bentham, thinking about reason and passion, the big theoretical issues in moral philosophy. So when I say This revolution is recent. It's recent in that it begins in the early 1970s. I became interested, in so far as I am, in applied ethics, and especially medical ethics, like many people, because I was commissioned to do a book on abortion in the early 1970s, and for the first time in my life, had to think about genuinely applied issues. This was in the wake of the Roe v. Wade decision in the spring of 1973. At that time, I had a commission from a publisher to uh, do an anthology in medical ethics, issues about medical ethics, and I concluded in 1974 that there were not enough good articles in medical ethics to put together an anthology. And I think I was right. Within a decade, though, there were over a dozen journals in medical ethics. There were publication series all over the world. There were academic centers, and this is what's new. The Kennedy Center at Georgetown was founded, the Hastings Center in Hastings on Hudson, New York. There were new textbooks in every area. There were new courses taught at universities in philosophy departments. There were virtually no courses in medical ethics or business ethics before this time. There were new occupational slots for philosophers, philosophers got jobs in hospitals, moral philosophers, they got jobs even in some cases in corporate America giving moral advice. There was a new public awareness of ethics. Ethicist, the term ethicist was invented as a sort of public figure who would be interviewed on the McNeil-Lehrer Report and would speak in kind of measured tones about what we should do. Would always have an academic credential, come from a research center, in ethics. We started more and more having government commissions where ethics advisors were prominent on them. Here we are 30 years later after this revolution embroiled in the great controversies about the stem cell, the new stem cell research and what does our culture do? It's perfectly natural for us now for the president and the legislators to turn the stem cell question over to a blue ribbon commission headed by an ethicist and filled with ethicists to tell us what to do. Now just as an aside, and we'll come back to this in just a moment, we've had two great commissions filled with blue ribbon uh, ethicists on the stem cell controversy in the last three years, one put together by the President's Commission, and one put together by the National Institutes of Health. And they disagree absolutely as to what we should do with regard to the stem cell controversy, but each side has on it blue ribbon ethicists with impeccable credentials, lots of books to their credit, prestigious academic appointments. Now something new happens then. The academic landscape of moral philosophy is transformed. No longer can people be educated as I was in the 1960s in philosophy without touching on these issues and we move forward into a kind of brave new world. Of relevance. Now I said above that the change was not only recent, it was large scale and wide-ranging. The range of issues, just to remind you, philosophers and moral philosophy has been involved in bioethics like the stem cell controversy. No philosophy department now can survive without teaching medical ethics and bioethics. Business ethics courses are also staffed frequently by philosophers, and business ethics as a discipline has sort of flourished in the last 30 years. Environmental ethics has drawn on the expertise of philosophers. Feminist ethics is a special kind of philosophical work, and very important kinds of philosophical work in recent years. And then sort of more narrow issues like the whole issue of animal rights, which was pretty much unheard of before the early 19th, 70s is almost completely a creation of philosophical reflection. In particular, man we'll talk about a little bit later, Peter Singer, who wrote a book called Animal Liberation in the 1970s, drawing on very abstract philosophical theory, in his case, utilitarianism. Now, there's been a revolution then. It started in the early 1970s. It's changed the way we think about ethics in this country because it gets philosophers engaged in the discussion of concrete issues. What are some of the features of this? And again, I have to say applied ethics is incredibly diverse as an area. I'm going to be focused on the philosophical side of it. There is a social scientific basis for much of applied ethics, which I want to leave aside for the most part, but I'll touch on it in a moment. What are some of the features of applied ethics as it exists in contemporary culture? Well, first of all, It's a kind of ethics that focuses on particular ethical disputes. When do we take people off respirators? How do we think about stem cells and so forth in business? How much can we bribe some foreign customs officer in order to get our products into? a country. It's driven by philosophy, I want to say. It's certainly not the case that applied ethics is philosophical all the way through, but in virtually every applied ethics textbook you will find an introduction which moves through some of the materials we've been talking about in this lecture series, draws the standard distinctions between Kantian deontological theories and virtue theories, talks about utilitarianism. Usually this is done very badly, I must say, but at least there's a contact with philosophy. And Insofar as applied ethics speaks authoritatively, it frequently speaks with the authority of philosophical reflecting. Applied ethics is unrelentingly secular. Although many of the uh, early figures in applied ethics, especially in business ethics, tended to come out of theology and were distinguished uh, Christian and Jewish theologians. Once applied ethics got underway, it becomes a venue in which we can talk about these great dilemmas in contemporary culture, a venue in which we can talk about them in a secular way because there's this great fear that if religion comes into the discussion and religious perspectives and religious points of view, it will be impossible to reach agreement. And finally, Applied ethics is treated as authoritative by secular institutions. The president doesn't create a presidential bioethics commission just for the fun of it or to reward his friends. He creates it because he takes seriously, as do, and he believes I think the rest of us do too, the kind of conclusions reached by this commission. Of course, he's very careful, as are his opponents when they create ethics commissions, to appoint persons to these commissions where he's quite certain what views they will end up coming up with why did this revolution happen? Why did this happen when it did? Why did it happen at all? I should say up front, we don't really know. There has not been nearly enough research done on why all of a sudden academic moral philosophers come to be involved in these concrete discussions of what we might call the quandaries of contemporary liberal democracy. I have views about this as do lots of other people. There's absolutely no question that it marks a new stage in public life in cultures like ours. We add a new kind of dimension to our public debate and discussion, the dimension of sustained philosophical kind of reflection on concrete moral dilemmas. But why it happened, when it happened, is something we're going to have to think about long and hard. But let me give you some ideas. In the 1960s, we had extreme social dislocation in our culture. I mentioned before, the 60s were a period of civil rights movement with lots of debates about fundamental questions about rights and race and equality and discrimination. It convulsed parts of our country. We had a great national debate and we were looking for resources to help us. We also had the great debates uh, surrounding the Vietnam War, questions about patriotism, what we owed our country, the rights of civil disobedience, the relationship between advanced countries like ours and South and East Asian countries like Vietnam, the moral content of imperialism, what constituted imperialism. The country was convulsed in a way by these debates at the same time we were having social dislocations having to do with the decline, I think, in authority of various kinds of institutions. The family was in trouble. The ready availability of cheap and effective contraception brought about a sexual revolution in the 1960s, the consequences of which we're still feeling in our culture. The authority of parents and family, the authority of the professions were called in to questions. All of these things happened in the 60s. and. Here too, there's much more for us to understand about this. There was of course also huge technological change. In the 1950s and 1960s, we essentially inherited all of the technology that had been created by the economic boom of the Second World War. All this attention we had paid to develop new products and new techniques and new scientific breakthroughs. It's important to remember that the intensive care unit it's a thing that hospitals only invented in the late 1960s. There were no transplants yet. All of transplant technology comes along in the decades after 1970. The technological change was incredible during this period, and it required of us new ways of thinking about how to deal with technology. Before, we didn't have to ask questions about keeping people when we took people off life-saving technologies, because there were virtually no life-saving technologies around except penicillin, and we'd only had it since the 1930s. Finally, there was, and this is associated with the decline of authoritative institutions, there was a kind of privatization of ethical thought. There was a kind of sense in the 1960s that ethics should be left to each person One of the great trends in moral education during this period was something called values clarification. In order, instead of telling people how they ought to behave or what ethics requires of them, we would let students in school just clarify their own values. This approach to ethics has been largely discredited, thank goodness, but it was a sign of the times and certainly one still hears this sort of rhetoric around even today. These are some of the backgrounds for, I think, the change, but I want to call your attention to some of the puzzling aspects of this change. What's remarkable about the applied ethics revolution is first of all that it occurred, that it occurred so dramatically, and it occurred at such a strange time. Puzzling aspects number one. If you think about classical metaethics, and here I want to think about the philosophy being prepared for this revolution, there were two dogmas of classical metaethics, I think, and they are these. First of all the thesis of moral neutrality, which we touched on briefly in our earlier lectures, the view that moral philosophy understood by people like Stevenson and the non cognitivists was completely morally neutral with regard to any substantive question. Moral philosophy couldn't tell you what to do and there was this fact value gap which essentially meant moral philosophy was suggesting to you that nothing else can tell you what to do either. You can't turn to philosophy for moral advice because of the thesis of moral neutrality and you can't turn to the world or factual claims about the world for moral advice because there's this sort of logical gap. So not surprisingly during classical meta period moral philosophy had nothing to offer in the way of advice. But what about when we turn to the revival of normative theory then things heat up, one might say. Now we get some stuff that's really going to be relevant. But here we have another problem. In classical metaethics, moral philosophy was conceived in such a way that it could not give us advice and it told us that nobody else could either. But once we move in the direction of normative theory We don't have too little theory, we in a way have too much. What we have is deep disagreement among normative theories. We have Rawls' neo-Kantianism. We have Parfit's neo-utilitarianism. We have MacIntyre's neo-Aristotelianism. And we have people like Richard Rorty who are maybe neo-Nietzians who are telling us to be light-minded and not worry about things at all. After all, just as it were, go with the flow. Now here the problem is if the culture is going to turn to moral philosophy, For moral advice, to be told what to do about stem cells, to be told what to do about taking older people off respirators, which philosophers are they going to turn to? Are they going to turn to John Rawls and be uh, told about the liberty principle and the difference principle? Or are they going to turn to Alistair McIntyre and have McIntyre tell them that what they need to do is form communities in which they can relate in an appropriate way to older people? What we in fact get are some of Rawls's students advising people to do one thing, some of Parfit's students advising them to do something else. Parfit's students are kind of soft-owned chickens and other animals. They're saying respect the rights of animals, don't uh, kill them. Uh, a great friend of mine, Tris Engelhardt, who is no friend of animals, at least in the way animal rights peoples are, has a recent article called The Rights of Animals in which he lists 10 rights, the first three of which are the right to be killed, the right to be eaten, and the right to be skinned. Now, Tris Engelhardt has big degrees, too, as does Derek Parfit. If you want to know how to think about animal rights, you can pick and choose. So it's puzzling in both these respects. Why does philosophy come to have cultural cachet with regard to these genuine dilemmas that we're all worried about at a moment when it has retreated either into the meta-ethical neutrality of Stevenson and the non-cognitivists or into the pluralism of the disputes within contemporary normative theory. Now one of the most exciting parts of contemporary moral philosophy in relationship to this second problem, the fact that we have too many theories, is the attempts on the part of a lot of people to show that although I've suggested that we have these sort of neo-Kantian theories, these neo-Aristotelian theories, these neo-utilitarian theories of various sorts. There are ways of reconciling the differences among these theories. And here are what I call, and this will give you an idea of what I think about these attempts, failed attempts to accommodate disorder. Someone might say, I'm being far too hard on contemporary normative theory by suggesting that we have these deep disagreements between Rawls and Parfit and McIntyre. And there have been attempts, and here are some of them, what I call assimilationism which is the view to suggest really Kant and Rawls Kantianism and MacIntyre's Aristotelianism they're really not so different after all And we looked a little bit earlier at some ways in which assimilationists have attempted to pull the sting from the virtue ethics critique we can show that that Rawls duties and MacIntyre's virtues and Parfit's consequences can be assimilated they're all just part of a complex kind of whole, there's no deep disagreement. I say baloney to that, but there are a lot of interesting attempts to try to do that. Some people have argued for minimalist views. Although McIntyre and Rawls and Parfit disagree at the level of normative theory, there's a minimum about which they disagree. In medical ethics, there's a famous minimalist textbook by two guys named Beecham and Childress where they try to suggest that everybody agrees on four basic principles, what some of us call the gang of four in medical ethics. And even though Kantians and utilitarians disagree, we, could, we all have this shared understanding. I say again to me simply not to work, it's mere hand-waving on their part. Some people have suggested that we need to turn to casuistry where we give up ethical theory altogether, we just focus on cases and then we don't get into disagreements. But then of course we don't need moral philosophy after all, one might say. There are a few triumphalists around, that is people who say they've actually won. Some Kantians think they have an argument. To prove that they're right. And they're triumphalists in this sense. But of course, since nobody else acknowledges that they're right, that doesn't help them much. A very complicated strategy, which I cannot dwell on, is associated actually with Rawls and some of his students, what I call rising above the ruins, where people like Rawls have suggested that we can find a common ground to attack these real problems by looking for principles. And this is a kind of minimalism that are shared by everybody, as it were, in the ruins of contemporary culture, the ruins of moral disagreement, and we can, by turning to those principles, come to make reasoned responses to these debates. I want to end by suggesting to you a way in which the situation in contemporary ethics, this is related to its secular nature, is very similar with religious discourse. We have these great debates among normative theories and fundamental disagreements and you might compare them to the disagreements we have among theists and atheists and various kinds of people who hold particular religious views. There's disagreement within moral philosophy and within religion about both method and content. Disagreement involves the deepest passions when you get Religious disagreement, this is one reason why we try to keep religious disagreement out of the public space. Both moral philosophy and religion tend to be totalizing views. There seems to be no neutral ground for settling them outside them. Disagreements are connected to group identity. And one might wonder, here's my question, why are religion and ethics treated so differently? In our culture now, we're very careful to keep religious debates out of the public sphere, the public space, because we think it's divisive. We turn to ethics because it's the place where we think we can get culturally authoritative agreement in a culture where there's very little agreement on the good. My suggestion to you is that this is a will-of-the-wisp. There's no reason to think that academic moral philosophy gives us any better chance for agreement than contemporary religion. And I want to pursue that thought a little bit in our final lecture next time in which I ask the question, whither ethic? We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.